Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. This is the last sermon in our series on biblical imperatives or New Testament imperatives or commands that are important for us to focus on in this time. Lord willing, we'll be moving on next week to the book of Acts. Our focus here at the end of this series has been on um, reaching out as a church, our duty to the world and in the world. A few weeks ago, we looked at how the church matures together as a body in Ephesians 4. That was more of an internal thing, that by speaking the truth and love to one another, we grow up together into the likeness of Christ. We mature the church together, and each of us has a part in that. Last week, though, we looked at um, how Jesus likens us as disciples to salt and light, and how we are called of him to have this positive evangelistic witness in our community and in the world around us. Well, the text that we're going to turn to here at the end takes those two ideas of discipling one another in the church, of maturing, speaking the truth and love to one another here in the church, and an evangelistic, outgoing, outreaching spirit, and puts them together under one mission, one purpose. And that is the great purpose that Jesus gives to his church. We find it in Matthew chapter 28, 16 to 20. This is the classic statement of the church's mission and calling in this world, a passage that we know as the Great Commission. What is a commission? A commission is instructions or commands or duties that are given to a person or a group of people to accomplish. It can also refer to the sense of empowerment or authority that they're given to fulfill that purpose. In military terms, a commission is actually a document that you receive. It's like documentary evidence of of who you are, what your rank is, and what your assignment is, and it gives you the empowerment to fulfill that duty and assignment wherever you go as an officer under the authority of your commander. I think it's helpful as we approach this this passage where Jesus gives us what we know as the Great Commission to think of it in terms like that, as a statement of our duties, of our charge as soldiers in Jesus' army, and as our authorization our empowerment from our commander to fulfill those duties. Let's read this text together. We find it in Matthew chapter 28. These are the last verses of the Gospel of Matthew, starting in verse 16. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the first verses that we read here, the early verses prior to the commission itself, explain the setting in which it was given. Verse 16 says that the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. This is taking place, everything that we're reading here is taking place after Jesus had been raised from the dead, but prior to the time of his ascension, there's a period of 40 days in which he is from time to time, week to week, appearing to his disciples. Up until this point, in small groups, intimate settings, in their homes or in the garden at the tomb, he makes appearances, surprise appearances, which are not planned, not anticipated. Jesus often just appears. There he is, not always recognized. He appears to the women who came to the tomb. He appears to some disciples on the road to Emmaus. At first, they don't recognize him, and then eventually they do. He appears to Peter, we know in there, because it's reported by those two men that he had appeared to Peter, and and so on. This is all happening in Jerusalem. Those are unplanned, surprise encounters with the risen Lord Jesus, where he just appears, and they are also like intimate and private kinds of encounters. 
This one here in Matthew 28 seems to be something different. Jesus has designated a place to meet. That's the first clue. He's designated a place, a particular mountain. And it's outside Jerusalem. It's not where they, all the action has gone down and where they're all hanging out and kind of cloistered and hiding, embarrassed and ashamed. This, he says, the, the angels, in fact, at the tomb, talked to the, the ladies who had gone to care for the body of Jesus and found the tomb empty. They, they announced to him, tell the disciples, tell Peter that Jesus has risen and to go to Galilee because he's going to meet them there. Jesus has designated a place for them to meet with him. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, talks about a time, that, that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is a passage about the resurrection from the dead. And Paul talks about various appearances of Jesus, one of which was at a time he says Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once. You remember that from 1 Corinthians 15? There's widespread uh, agreement among scholars that this is the, uh, that appearance with 500 people at once. And I think the reasons for thinking that are, one, we know that an appearance like that happened sometime in these 40 days, but that Jesus has designated a specific place that keeps coming up in announcements to his disciples, a particular place, a particular time, that that, that place is not in Jerusalem, it's outside, and it's outside in Galilee where a lot of his disciples, a lot of his followers were. A lot of Galileans who were disciples of Jesus Christ. So there's good reason to think that this is that appearance to 500 people at once. Now I'm stressing this because there, there's this sneaky attempt that I've made in the past in my ignorance and, and fear and that many people where we try to escape the burden of this great commission, this evangelistic, outreaching, disciple-making commission by saying it was only given to the eleven. And maybe you can say pastors are implied in that. Yeah, they have the burden to disciple the nations and to tell people about Jesus and to make disciples, but I don't, you know. I'm just a college student. I'm just a kid. I'm just a wife or a mother. I'm just a dad. I'm just, I'm just a whatever. It's not my burden. It's somebody else's problem. But I don't think that we can do that. Jesus, I believe, met with a bunch of people and he put this charge on them. And we see that the Christians in the early chapters of Acts, they certainly felt this burden and were enacting it. One of the things, beautiful things we see in the, and will see, I believe, in the book of Acts is that the whole Christian community is joined together in making disciples and spreading the news and the message about Jesus. Yeah, they actually have to get kicked out of Jerusalem by persecution to finally get around to going out to the nations but they do, and they all share in it. It's not just the apostles, it's not just the leaders, it's also just people telling people, other people about Jesus. We see that in the book of Acts. So they took it to heart and felt that this was their responsibility. So what happened at this, what I believe was a, likely a large gathering of disciples who met with Jesus at a place of his appointment? Well, Jesus appears. He shows up. He approaches them, it seems, from a distance because it says he came up and spoke to them in verse 18. How do the disciples respond to this encounter with Jesus? Well, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some, it says, were doubtful. I think this is a further evidence that not only the 11 were present at this encounter because at the, by this time, they had all spent time with Jesus. They'd all seen him. Thomas was absent that first time he showed up with the, with the other uh, disciples, and he doubted, but Jesus showed up again, and he said, Thomas, put your hand right there in my hand. Put it in my side and see that I'm real. I'm not a ghost. He even ate food with them. He had, he had shown up a number of times. The apostles knew and had confirmed for them that Jesus was risen from the dead. So I think this is another indication that there are more people present because there's people here are doubting. They've heard the testimony of the apostles and the people in Jerusalem who said, he's risen and he's going to meet us here. But they were doubting. And I think that this means that these were Galileans who wanted to believe, but were like Thomas, weak in faith and doubtful. Well, what did Jesus say to them there? Well, Jesus probably said many more things than are recorded in this 
these few verses. But Matthew wants us to know what the most important takeaway of this gathering was. What was the primary message? And that's what we call the Great Commission. Let's look at that together. This great charge, what Matthew Henry calls a great, the great charter of the church. Here's how it begins, verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We think of the Great Commission, uh, when I think of the Great Commission, I think of it mainly in terms of it applying to me. It's, it's my commission, but it's actually Jesus' commission, or rather it flows out of his own reward and inheritance of the nations. That's where it comes from. This is the great gospel fact from which the imperative or the command to us flows. This is a reward. This great commission is a reward given to Jesus in honor of his faithful, sacrificial, obedient service in in his role as the redeemer in the plan of redemption. Paul tells us in the Philippians 2, this is a much-loved, great passage of Scripture, Philippians 2, that because Jesus humbled himself, he came down and emptied himself of his heavenly glory because he humbled himself to become a man to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, it says in Philippians 2, you see it there. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was given to Jesus as a reward of his faithful service to his Father. And this was promised to him from the, by the prophets from before time. We read about this in the prophets. Uh, David, in Psalm 2, bring, pull up that psalm, please. Psalm 2, verse 8. David writes about this prophetically in the second psalm. It's like a little conversation in the middle of that psalm between the father and the son. And he's, it's like the father says, ask of, ask of me, son, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Just ask me, son, and I'll give it to you. This was promised to Jesus, the son. And it says this thing that was prophetically anticipated will certainly come about. We see this in Revelation, I think chapter seven, yeah. Revelation chapter seven, verse nine says, this is John looking into the heavenly future. He says, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, and all tribes and peoples and tongues. And what were they doing? They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, redeemed people, cleansed. And palm branches were in their hands. I love Palm Sunday. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's, what's, that's where history is headed. That will surely come about by the end of the age. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian and statesman, brilliant man, wise man, worth reading and knowing. He has this very famous statement about the dominion and authority of Jesus Christ over all things. He says, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The earth belongs to Jesus Christ. The nations belong to him. We, all of us, every one of us here, every citizen of Bloomington and of the state of Indiana, of the United States of America, of North America and South America, and all the continents and all the nations and tongues, owe obedience and fealty and worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the authority that he has. And it's on the basis of that absolute authority that he says to his disciples, go. Therefore, because of this, go and make disciples. It all belongs to Jesus. Verse 19, go therefore 
And out of this authority, on the basis of what I've just said and claimed for myself, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. There's a couple of really remarkable things about this statement of Jesus, this command to go and make disciples. The first is that he's saying that his teachings, his way of life, his example, everything that he's imparted to these, this group of followers belongs to the whole world, and it's their job to impart it to them. They're to take it out and share it with the whole world. Now, that would have been a very radical idea to them, not the least because it's so bodacious, but also because Judaism up to this point was not really known as a missionary religion. Proselytizing missionary evangelism, it's a fancy word for evangelism, proselytizing, making disciples, of uh, going out and seeking people to, to join was something that had started to happen around the time of Jesus in later Judaism, but they didn't have anything worth selling. <laughs> they, were, they were selling people on bare formalism and hypocrisy. And Jesus rebukes them for it. But by and, by and large, Judaism was not an, a, a, an outgoing or missional, mission-minded religion. And that's because God had chosen and to reveal himself to a particular family, a particular nation, a people. And he had made his name to dwell in a particular place and city and temple. And, all, and it made room for people to come, Gentiles to come and join themselves to the people of God. It was generous that way. You could, really be, you could be a Gentile, there's examples of this in scripture, and you could come and say, I want to worship this God, I want to join this people, and they would make room for you. They'd assign you one of the tribes, and you'd have a share in that tribe, and you would be considered a real Jew. That's very different than the gospel, what the gospel does in the new covenant. It goes out to the nations, and it sets up shop there, on their turf, with their language, and says, You as a nation, as a people, as a family, you worship Jesus and Jesus will be here with you. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. He'll be wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name. We're living stones as a spiritual house for God. That's in the New Testament. That's a radical change. Jesus is saying, this message, what I'm doing now, now belongs to the whole world and you're to take it out to them. This is is, is a... Very big change. And it's a controversial change. It's a controversy that actually runs throughout the whole book of Acts and all of the epistles and letters of the New Testament. It's what Paul is often fighting about and trying to get people to stop fighting about. This was hard for the Jews in particular to accept. God was breaking down the dividing wall between Jew and and Gentile, and making big changes that cast the net wide. And it was hard for his people, the Jews, to accept those changes, and particularly the fact that they weren't that special anymore. And their old ways, most of those ways are now changing of necessity and of consequence because of what God is doing through Jesus and the gospel. He is making his church missional and sending them out to the world. The second remarkable thing that we see here is this. Jesus is speaking to disciples, his disciples, men and women who had followed him around and listened to his teaching, seen his example, tried to put it into practice in their lives, and he's saying to them, now you, I'm out of here, now you go make disciples of your own. By baptizing them and teaching them everything I've said. So it's not like we're discipling them to our own ideas, our own personality, or any of the things. We're not building a cult of personality as we do this. We're doing it for Jesus. But we are, he is talking to his disciples who he has imparted his life to, his ways, his teachings to. And he says, now you go do that with others. That's the mission of the church, even to the ends of the earth. Go and make disciples. What is a disciple? 
Well, it's, it's a, a disciple is someone who follows the teachings and practices of another. Pretty simple. Somebody who follows the teachings and practices, the values, the way of life or pattern of life of another, and they try to, to base their life and their practices and values and thoughts on that other person. Follow after them. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. In fact, that's what the Christians were first called. They were disciples of Jesus. And it was only later in Acts 11 that we read that they were given in Antioch first the name Christian, which was like a, uh, probably a pejorative term, a making fun of kind of term of these, li- these little Christs. That, that's what a disciple is, is to be like a little Christ, trying to follow after their master and pattern their life after him and be like him. That's what a disciple of Jesus is. And that's people probably mockingly called them Christian, little Christ. But to be a Christian is to be a disciple. Now, Christian discipleship is an all-consuming thing. It makes big demands. Jesus makes big demands on us. It's, it's, he says, give up your life. Lay it down. And take on my life, my characteristics, and follow after me. You're old. If you're going to be my disciple, leave it all behind. Everything's new. You pattern your life and your thinking, your beliefs on me. It's a radical thing. Jesus doesn't have two classes of disciple, those who give up everything to follow him and those who don't. He makes full demands. He demands full allegiance and full surrender to him. We are to surrender ourselves completely to Jesus, to grow more and more into his image and likeness, grow in our understanding of his truth and his ways with the goal, this is what we learned from the Great Commission, with the goal of then in turn imparting those things to others and passing it on by making disciples of our own. We are to become disciples of Jesus, pattern our lives off him and off people that are like him, that are ahead of us, and then in turn take on disciples of our own and impart those same values, those same teachings, those same truths, the same ways to others. That's the Great Commission. Dependence on personality or on a particular teacher is not the goal. It is not the end. And that is not a winning strategy. That's a dead end. The goal is to make disciples who then make disciples who then make disciples. Replication, multiplication is the goal. That's a winning strategy. That is how the gospel will triumph in the world. That is how the kingdom of Christ will come. That is how the church is to advance in the world. That method, that's the method that Jesus is instituting here in Matthew 28. Making disciples who turn, in turn make disciples. Would someone looking from the outside at you say, there's someone who has abandoned his life to Jesus Christ. There's somebody who belongs to Jesus. The author of Hebrews sees it as a problem when believers fail to progress to this point in their discipleship of making disciples of their own. The author of Hebrews sees it as a failure. Something's gone wrong. It's something to be irritated at if you're an author of scripture, that if you see a disciple who is not progressing to the point where they're able to teach others. He says this in Hebrews 5.12. By this time, you ought to be teachers. You have need, though, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Shame on you. You're to, we are to progress. We are to grow to the point that we can teach others what we have learned. The ways we have learned. I saw a wonderful example of a father discipling his son today, Forrest and Silas. Did you see little Silas over here passing the plates like his dad? It was really sweet. That's, that is a form of discipling, modeling, responsibility taking, and service. Father to his son, and it's beautiful. 
We are to grow to be teachers and disciples of others. This does not mean that all of us should aspire to my job, to the office of pastor teacher. We saw in Ephesians 4 that, yes, some people are gifted and qualified and called to fill that role. It's an essential role in the church. But all of us together, that passage makes clear that the burden of ministry and of building up the church belongs to all of us together. All of us have the responsibility to speak the truth in love and thereby to mature the body of Christ and to build it up. All of us share in that. It's fine in the early stages of discipleship to be mostly a recipient of teaching and instruction, modeling and example. That's fine for a period. But that is not where we are to stay. We are to advance and to grow to the point that we can impart and pass on what we have come to, what we've grown into to others. Whether this is through evangelistic witness out in the world, well, let me just say this. One of the mistakes I think we make when we approach the Great Commission is we assume that it's talking all about evangelism. Do you assume that? That's usually been my assumption. When I think about the Great Commission, I think, well, yeah, that's about evangelism, and I feel bad about how lousy I am about evangelism, so I'm going to take that, I'm going to put it in a box, I'm going to put it on the shelf, I'm not going to think about that because that's too unbearable to think about how bad I am at that feeling. That's, that's hopeless, so forget about it. That's how I think about the Great Commission. It's really helpful to consider, though, that the command is not to evangelize, it is to make disciples. Now, evangelism is, of course, a necessary first part of making a disciple. Somehow you have to make the first connection, the first contact. You have to introduce them to the idea, to the person that they're to to follow, Jesus Christ. Some people are uniquely gifted and good at making those first connections and first contacts, reaching out. Some people are gifted with the gift of evangelism. I do hope and expect that all of us, myself included, can grow in our usefulness to God in evangelism. We need to grow. All of us can grow. I bet a lot of us can do a lot better than we think we can if we would just try and love people and have concern for them. But some people are just really good at that. I was thinking about violin. I used to be a pretty good violinist, but I was a lousy beginner teacher. I I taught some lessons, but I found out pretty quickly that I was bad at teaching beginners the violin. Some people are really good at that. In fact, that's their specialty, taking somebody from zero to two or two and a half on the scale. I was much better at teaching people who already knew pretty much how to play. (laughs) But that's a a use. I had a teacher, I, I came to a teacher, and I could sort of basically play, and he took me a lot farther. That some people are gifted in that, of taking somebody who's already initiated and begun, and has come so far down the road and taking them further. This is discipleship. Discipleship is a life. It's not just the doorway, the entry point. That's part of the beginning of a life but it is our whole life beginning to end, new birth to death. And so it is, it is something that all of us are here doing. We are being discipled. We are discipling one another. This is not just about evangelism, although evangelism is a necessary component of fulfilling this commission. We can't do it without reaching out. We can't grow fast, fast enough, without reaching out and making new disciples who don't, and introducing people to Jesus who don't already know him. But there's a whole lot more to discipling than just that. And it is this full-orbed thing that every one of us here can participate in must participate in. From the least to the greatest, we have a role to play in making disciples. And not just that. 
We have a role to play in making disciples who make disciples. This is what we learn from the Great Commission. This is the goal. Well, Jesus goes on to give the means by which we fulfill this mission to disciple the nations. He says, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, and here's how you do it. Two means are given. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and secondly, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Sadly today, much of what passes for Christian discipleship is completely divorced from any commitment or connection to the body of Christ of the local church, the visible body of Christ. The parachurch ministry, which probably started as a healthy, necessary corrective to failures of the church, the ingrownness of the church or whatever, let's give it the benefit of the doubt, has grown and to dominate and even change the whole character of the way the church thinks of itself. And in the wake of that, the church has lost its whole identity and sense of itself. This was not given to a family or a person. It was, it was not given to a parachurch organization. This commission was given to the church of Jesus Christ. And it belongs to her. And it's our duty to fulfill it. And one of the ways we see that that connection is absolutely necessary is in this command to baptize. The baptism, the sacraments, the things that divide um, people of the world and people of the household of God, the sacraments, baptism is one of those, and it does divide. And that is the first way in which Jesus says we fulfill this commission, which means we must fulfill it together as the body of Christ. None of us are in this on our own, but we're in it together as the body of Christ. The disciple's first formal step in committing himself to Jesus Christ is to be baptized into the triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the formal, official opening of the life of a disciple, of the discipleship process. There's lots of informal work that goes on to bring a, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to that point. But this is like the official start or launch of that life of discipleship. And it's a radical sign. It's a sign of total death to the old man and to the flesh and of newness in Christ, of new life and a new way. It's a complete identity with Christ, joining in him his death and in his resurrection. That's what the sign points to. It's a radical sign. By baptism, we announce that we are no longer our own man or our own woman, our own boy or girl. We are Christ's man and woman, boy and girl. We visibly identify before the world as his, and he owns us as his own at the same time in that act of baptism, which means that baptism is an authoritative, declarative act of initiation, not just into a life of discipleship, life in Christ, but life in the household of faith. Baptism is the initiation rite and sign that joins us not just to Jesus Christ, but to his body, the church. It admits us into the membership and fellowship officially and formally with the church. This is hard to explain because we are so individualistic and the norms and the assumptions of the New, the New Testament writers are so foreign to us. They didn't even have to talk about this stuff and that's why there's not a lot of like explicit commands about ecclesiology and about who should perform a baptism and all of these things. A lot of that is by implication that we come to understand that baptism is an authoritative act that admits people into the fellowship and communion of the church and therefore it should be under the authority of the church. The commission of Jesus is not sending Curtis out to baptize, but it is sending Curtis out or it is giving him a part in this great 
vision and mission of discipling the nations. All of us have a part, but not all of us have authority and authorization here to baptize. Now this is, baptism is like so cheap today, they're giving it out like candy. The people who are performing these things in mass at crusades and uh, um, or in, in their homes with their ch- own children or their spouse. This is, hap- this is what people do for baptism. They just, it's like a personal private thing or it's just a buddy thing or it's an informal thing that anybody can do because look, it's in the Great Commission. It says baptize. These are hard things to explain. But baptism is an authoritative declarative act of admitting somebody into the membership of the church. And therefore, by implication, we've come to understand, and all history agrees with us, that it should be performed by, in, under the auspices of the church and under the authority of the elders of the church. It's their job to kick out, so it's their job to admit in. Does that make sense? We have to, in order to protect the significance and the solemnity of holy baptism. This is one of the ways we can protect that is by reclaiming it as the responsibility ultimately of the authorities of the church, the officers of the church to administer. Following Jesus is serious business and we need to honor that by honoring baptism as a solemn act of admission into the life and fellowship of the church. The second interesting thing that's going on here is that Jesus gives, um, the, the second means that he's given, is giving for making disciples is this. He's saying, he says, teach them in verse 20. Baptize them and teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Baptism, while it's important, is really just a, a ceremonial beginning a sign of beginning. The person who has been discipled to the point of baptism professes faith and is ready to own the Lord and die to his former life and join himself to Jesus Christ formally has only just begun his course of discipleship. It's just the beginning. Notice that it's not simply teaching disciples the commands of Jesus but teaching them to observe them. Now, you could teach yourself the commands of Jesus. You can poke around on the internet. You can learn some things. You can get yourself some books. You can open up your Bible, and you can learn the commands of Jesus. You cannot teach yourself to observe them. They were never meant to be imparted that way. They are meant to be modeled by others. They are meant to be passed on from others, from a, from a mentor to a mentee. Is that a real word, mentee? We say that from time to time. It always sounds ridiculous. There, there needs to be a word for that other person in the equation. What is it? Is it a real word? Okay, it sounds ridiculous. We are meant to learn from others. We cannot, do, we cannot learn to observe and obey the commands, all the teachings of Jesus in isolation. It's in the crucible of the church with all its God-intended, God-given social pressures, its accountability structures, its authority in our lives, It's authoritative voice and declaration. It's admonishments. The admonishments of one another informally and when necessary, the the heavies, the heavy uh, voice of the elders in our lives. We cannot learn to observe the commands of God outside of the church. We need one another. That's what I'm saying. God knows that. And so when he makes a disciple, he, he says, you cannot be a disciple without being joined to the body of Christ and having a deep-seated allegiance and commitment 
to the church. And so when we go out to disciple people, our goal needs to be to bring them in. To join them to the fellowship of the people of God. Bring them into the household of God, which is ruled over by God the Father and shepherds and under-shepherds and has all this wonderful one-anothering work that goes on that works together, all of it together, to disciple and build up with the goal that that person then in turn becomes a discipler of others and brings them in to be discipled by everyone. Does that not reflect your life? We're to have a heart to see that, to, to spread that, to teach others and to bring more people in. Jesus bookends this commission that he gives his church with assurances of his power and authority on the front end and then of his assurance that he will be with us to the end of the age. Lo, behold, says Jesus, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He promised, of course, towards the end of his life, that he would not be with us always, and that was better for us because the helper will come. I will send the helper. And he knew that that was what we needed most. We needed the Holy Spirit to be granted to us. This is how Jesus dwells with us and abides with us, is by his Holy Spirit. He says, I will be with you always. This word always, if you have a Bible that has like marginal notes, literally means all the days. If you know your own experience as a disciple, you know that there's lots of ups. Well, there's some ups. and There's lots of downs in the, in the course of discipleship. Jesus is saying, I'm with you in all those days. The highs and the lows. Listen to this. I read this last night. Somebody on this verse says, Jesus is with us all the days. Days of strength and weakness. Days of success and failure days of joy and of sorrow, of youth and of age, days of life and the day of death, all the days. Lo, I'm with you. Oh, we could not even bear to think of this command. We wouldn't have the nerve to begin to disciple the world, to disciple my own family, to disciple myself with the help of the word and of God's people. We just wouldn't have the nerve or the hope if we did not first have this beautiful statement of his authority and power from which it flows and his promise to abide with us and to be with us in it and to help us. Jesus is with us all the days, every day even to the end of the age. We're, this is referring, this statement, the end of the age, this is referring to the world period that we're living in now. Introduced by Jesus' coming and consummated at his second coming. We're in that period. And as we wait that day of his appearing, we are to give ourselves faithfully to the task of growing disciples who in turn grow disciples and advance the cause of Jesus Christ. This is our mission. This is our charge, our commission. This is the business that we are to be about. Now, just a few closing thoughts. Discipleship is not my job. It's our job together. Are you engaged in this work? The church needs you. I, as the pastor of this church, need you to be engaged in this work with me of discipleship. The goal of all of our ministry is discipleship. The goal of my preaching to you on Sundays is to grow disciples who will grow disciples. That's the goal. This is only one form, though, of accomplishing this commission. It's an important part. 
Sitting under the ministry of the word preached is an important part, but this is only one part of a multifaceted thing. Discipleship can take many forms. It can be formal. This is a formal setting. I'm doing the talking, you're doing the listening. At an appointed time in a room, that's formal. It can be informal. Getting together for coffee, one-on-one with somebody. It can, be, it can happen in group settings or in one-on-one relationships. It can be programmatic. We heard about all of our discipleship programs launching this fall. It can be programmatic or it can be more organic. Like Moses in Deuteronomy gives instructions to parents about how to disciple their kids. He says, talk about these principles, these laws, these things. What does he say? When you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. It's more organic. It's less structured. It's just sort of all the time be thinking about how you can be imparting these things to your kids. The staff and now the elders board are starting to read a book. We read a book and the elders are joining with us in it that advocates more one-on-one discipleship in the church than is typically practiced these days. More one-on-one, person-to-person forms of discipleship than they typically, the authors typically encounter or, or, or find going on in churches. It, it doesn't do, say this at the, to the exclusion of programs. Programs are good, necessary, and helpful in discipling people in mass or in groups. But they say this, they, they're just acknowledging that there is this, there's a real power in one-on-one meeting with people and opening up God's word and talking about it together. And this book makes it pretty easy. It's like, it makes it sound like any, any one of us could do this with somebody. It says there's no mystery to it. You don't have to have big ideas or big insights or even know a lot. You don't have to have read Matthew Henry and John Calvin and have an outline and a study. All you have to do, the book says, is open up God's word. It doesn't even really matter to which page. And talk about what God says what he means, and what we're supposed to do with it. Any of us could do that. And it's God's word that grows a disciple. That's the, the food the disciple grows on, not your charisma or intellectual ability or insights. God's word itself, read and talked about, prayed over, contemplated and applied, is what makes a disciple And every one of us could be doing that with somebody in our circle, somebody who doesn't know the Lord yet. Really, there there are people, many people are actually, would be interested in sitting down with you and talking about the Bible that don't know the Lord and aren't a part of the church. The Bible's an interesting book and nobody wants to talk about it. And people are actually kind of (laughs) interested. It's like one of those banned books and people are kind of curious about what's in the banned book. Oh, and you seem to know something about it. Maybe it's a pretty, you know, it's, it's a big book. It's kind of intimidating. I'd sit down with you and talk about that. That sounds interesting. There's some people that would do that. But certainly, if that intimidates you and scares you, you can do that with people who are hungry, who are committed to following the Lord and just need a teacher. You don't need my permission to do that. You have it from the authority of God. As a commission, you can disciple people. You're a disciple maker. So I hope you're thinking about who you might be able to disciple and influence and take on as a pupil. It's not, it's not, it's not magic. Max, I think, the Pastor Max, we were talking about this on Tuesday at staff meeting. He said, I think people think about this in like evangelism and, and discipling as sort of like pixie dust. There's some special magic that you need to do it. You don't. You just need to take on a pupil and mentor somebody (laughs) and talk to them about what the Lord, what Jesus has taught and how to observe those things in their life. There's no magic to it. And God's word is powerful to do that work. Older men, older women, seasoned disciple, look around, find somebody who needs instruction. Jeff Ewer and Amanda Ewer and Stephen Baker and Seber Baker reached out to me and Jenna when we were new here and discipled us. Thank you.
Thank you, Stephen and Zebra. Find people who need discipled. Love them. Have them over. Open up God's word and talk about it. Young people who are hungry to grow and feeling the need for discipleship and mentoring, don't wait for somebody to ask you. Go to them and say, hey, I, I really respect you and your faith. Would you mind sitting down with me, meeting with me, and helping me understand God's word better and helping me know how to apply it to my life? That'll help them overcome their intimidation of asking you. <laughs> and you'll get, it'll be a joy to them and you'll grow. Again, you don't need my authorization or permission, but if you do need it, you have it. I hope that you will start doing this. We need, I, uh, the book has convinced me that this is, this is something that we should start doing. Just informally, naturally, it should be part of our ministry to one another in this church and in our community. Discipling people. Okay, you could also sign up for our discipleship programs. There's a lot of things starting up now. Men, come and study the book of Mark. It will grow you as a disciple and challenge you to reach out and disciple others. So thankful to all of you who are working to serve the needs of our children and to teach them by running those programs. Thank you. They're very useful, and I hope you all will in, you get your kids in them. Okay, listen. We have this commission to disciple from Jesus Christ. This is the whole, our whole reason to exist right here, to disciple the nation, to disciple our little corner of the end of the earth, which is right here in Bloomington. On campus, after school, in our homes, with our colleagues, we could start a Bible study, we could take on a spiritual pupil, we could become a mentor to someone, we can open up our Bible, and we can talk about what we see there, and we can prayerfully apply it to our lives together. Would you give yourself to this work? Everyone here can do this. It's not complicated. And all of us either need to be on our way to growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ or, and passing that on to others, or we need to start doing it today. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and his incredible authority and his command to disciple. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand how we can implement that command in our personal lives, what we're supposed to do with it. And I pray that we would um, be eager to grow and eager to see and help others around us grow in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.